Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Bushball. Glad you joined us. Today, we are taking a break from guests. Don't worry. We've got lots of guests lined up um, to get you through the summer. However, today we're going to kind of back to our original format for a week where we do a player profile. We talk about some interesting things going on in minor league baseball, and we talk about our team of the week. So today's a good day to stop by if you are really interested in baseball history and hearing about some wacky promotions. Thanks for joining us. Sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Bushball. begin our first segment, uh, we're going to talk about Legends of the Miners, segment that I like to do. It's basically a player profile that shares the story of a minor league player who made an impact on the game, or at least uh, left a lasting impression, but didn't necessarily make it to the big leagues. And this particular subject is no different. He um, has the distinction of playing for more teams than any other player in professional baseball history. I got to thank, first, before we get into uh, his career, I got to give a shout out to Tim Haggerty. His his book um, on all the different minor league team names was an excellent source. Uh, If you want to pick it up, it's called Root for the Home Team, Minor League Baseball's Most Off-the-Wall Team Names. That's by Tim Haggerty. And he was very helpful in certainly with my team of the week. But uh, he also wrote an article that got picked up, and it's about his subject was a man by the name of Bill Sisler. And Bill Sisler is the gentleman I was referring to, has the distinction of playing for more baseball teams than any professional player in history. He was born in Rochester, New York in 1900, and he suited up for the first time professionally in 1923 for the Elmira Red Jackets, a name that's actually kind of worthy of one of our wacky team names. I guess the Red Jacket name was in honor of a Seneca chief who apparently went by the name of Red Jacket or wore a Red Jacket. I'm not certain. However, um, our subject, Bill Sisler, uh, had a career that spanned 27 years in professional baseball, and he played for over 43 teams. Um, some teams he would play for, you know, for just a matter of days, <laughs> and then they would release him. Some teams he would last maybe a couple months. However, when you look at his career, um, if you go to the Baseball Reference website, you can see his career and all the teams that he played for. It literally looks like a bus schedule. There are so many teams, mainly played in the New England area, so a lot of Midwestern towns that he played for as well. Wherever he could get a job, Bill Sisler was going to go. So how does somebody play for 43 teams over the course of a 27-year career? Well, there's a couple things at play here. Number one, he wasn't very good. Bill Sisler did not have the ability. He was only five foot six, 150 pounds, and he threw left-handed, and he was a pitcher. Um, and he definitely lost more games than he won. 
I think over 900 innings that he pitched, he only had like 30 strikeouts. So um, he was not uh, a power pitcher by any stretch. What he did have a gift for was he could sell himself. Bill Sisler could convince, you know, a team president or a team owner that that he could help their team and that uh, he was the guy. And if they sign him, that uh, it'll it'll be it'll be great for him and great for them. So he was kind of known as a great pitch man uh, who couldn't pitch. So his career kind of went like this. He'd play for four or five teams in a season and he kind of had a routine. He'd get a job. He'd pitch. They wouldn't like him after a start or two. They'd release him. And then he'd start, first thing he would do is he'd, he'd contact the Sporting News and let them know that he had been released and that he was available. Um, then he'd pick up the, uh, the Sporting News or the newspaper and he'd look for teams with losing records or teams that were having, were struggling and didn't have a good record. Then he'd hit them up for a contract. And then that's when Bill Sisler would go to work. All he had to do was get in the, into the office of a of a general manager or an owner or a team president, and Bill could convince him to give him a job. And so he did this 43 times over a 27-year career. Uh, a typical stay for Sisler would only last a few outings, like I said, and then the team would release, release him. The highest level that he made it to was actually – Double A, and most of his career was played in um, B, C, and D leagues, predominantly in the C league. One team, actually, I don't know how this happened. I don't think I'd want this designation. The Clarksburg Generals actually signed him twice. And so I don't know how after seeing him once, a team would bring him back because that seemed to be the trend. He'd pitch a few games, get released, and then he'd go on to the next town. And so the Clarksburg General saw something in Bill. I got to tell you, though, you know, it's, it's kind of light to talk about Bill's career and being with 43 teams. But you know what? He made a career out of it. 27 years as a professional baseball player um, is, is nothing. It's, it's awesome. He kind of had a passion. There was no plan B for him. And he was going to play baseball no matter what it took. I guess he kept himself in excellent shape all the way up into his late 40s when he was still pitching and was always ready to for the next team. Um, he also managed towards the end of his career. He was a player manager towards the last few years of his career. He, one year he was the player manager, uh, or he was a manager. He was a player. He was the pitching coach, and he was the groundskeeper, apparently. So he was a busy guy. Had to retire due to health reasons. In his later years, he stayed in the game as best he could. He ran some youth camps that taught firing baseball players how to become professional baseball players before finally retiring kind of in solitude or, I guess, as a recluse um, in St. Petersburg, Florida, for passing away in the 1980s. So he he actually was hit up for interviews um, I know that the uh, Baseball Research um, Society hit him up for an interview. They were intrigued by his career, and they uh, wanted to interview him. And he basically kept it short. He didn't want to do the interview. 
He said, uh, my, my career was poor. I was highly disappointed that I didn't make it to the big leagues. And I'm trying to forget it ever happened. Those were his words. That's pretty much all we have on Bill Sisler and his comment about his 27-year career with 43 teams. But I got to tell you, Bill is a baseball man or was a baseball man. He stuck with it, and I respect him for that. He uh, knew what he loved and and uh, went wherever he had to go to keep playing baseball. So here's to Bill. I really enjoyed his story, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. We're going to move on to segment two, where we talk about the worst promotions in minor league history. Of course, this is on the heels of our conversation with Lloyd Allen, where he graced us with a tale of 10 cent beer night did a great job that was such a wild story if you haven't heard it you didn't get a chance to hear it it was last week's podcast and uh lloyd did a great job telling that story and you should take a listen if you want to learn about probably probably the most notorious night in in baseball history was 10 cent beer night i call it the the altamont of baseball for those of you who are music buffs you know what i mean So we're going to kick off this second segment with our wackiest minor league promotions. There's a lot of them. After, you know, scouring MILB and the internet, I found what I would say are my top five. And so so number five, the Altoona Curve, a double-A affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, have hosted on several occasions an awful night. Which made it to, which was made to purposely give the fans in attendance a terrible ball game experience. So as they entered the gates, they were given a spork instead of like the typical, you know, towel or calendar or ball that they might well, not ball. That'd be another terrible promotion. But they'd give them an item, so they were given sporks, and they were encouraged to wear awful clothes. The PA announcer consistently read players' names incorrectly and terrible uh, David Hasselhoff songs blared the ballpark speakers. They would also explain um, when players came up, they wouldn't share their their batting average. They would share their failing average. So if a 300 hitter came up, it would say that he failed 70% of the time instead of batting 300. So they just tried to take a little weird kind of take to a promotion. They've done it multiple times, so I guess it was a hit. Of the team, Altoona Curve uh, got into the act one night on Awful Night where they blew a, a five-run lead in the ninth inning. So they, I guess they just wanted to uh, participate in the awfulness. So some of these promotions are really weird. And number four, Toilet Seat Cushion Night. And this was put on by the Hudson Valley Renegades, and it was in... 2007, where the first 3,000 fans through the gates were given a toilet seat as a handout. The cushion did have kind of a dual purpose because it could double as a seat cushion. Never thought of that. But yeah, you get one of those padded ones. That'd make a nice little uh, soft spot to sit during a baseball game. And so I guess this was a follow-up promotion to one that they did the previous year called the Plunger Giveaway. So I don't know what it is about Hudson Valley Renegades, but they're really... uh, They're really locked on the whole toilet area thing. So number three comes to Political Correctness Night. This was put on by the Lowell Spinners, a Class A affiliate of the Boston Red Sox. And 
basically the idea behind Political Correctness Night was that, and they took it to the max. So the first baseman was referred to as the first base person. And all night, uh, errors that were uh, committed uh, were not attributed to any particular player during the game. And apparently they had a contest um, during the seventh inning where they brought fans down on the field to compete in some kind of, I don't know, exercise to where they could win a prize. Well, all of the contestants went home with a trophy. And so they kind of took it to the max in Lowell and uh, Political Correctness Night makes number three. So our number two wackiest promotion comes from the Fort Myers Miracle. And so the Miracle honored... uh, the hilarious lifestyle of the Seinfeld character, George Costanza. So they had a George Costanza night. You remember that episode where he starts making decisions by doing the opposite of his instincts. And so the miracle decided to take George Costanza night and apply it to a baseball game. Um, And they did this by running the baseball game in the opposite of a normal routine. Uh, This meant that the scoreboard ran from the ninth inning to the first Fans were paid money to park. Um, teams wore the opposite home road uniforms, and players asked fans for their autographs. Because remember, if every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. So that's George Costanza Knight, Fort Myers Miracle, and that's our number two wacky promotion. And now that takes us to the number one spot. My choice for number one wackiest promotion in minor league baseball history. It included uh, a player by the name of Jose Canseco. We all know Jose Canseco as the juice guy, right? He um, wrote a book called Juiced and was, uh, you know, clearly stated that he used steroids during his baseball career. Well, one night um, while playing independent ball for a team in Long Beach, the Long Beach Armada, the opponent that night were the Fullerton Flyers. And so the Fullerton Flyers decided that they were going to, the day that Jose was playing, they were going to give away juice boxes. So each fan that walked through the gate to watch the game between the Long Beach Armada and the Fullerton Flyers on that night that included Jose Canseco, each got a juice box. To me, that's like, that's hilarious because it's, it's so clever that uh, they would come up with that. And it's kind of a a finger in your eye, but super hilarious. Juice Box Night, Fullerton Flyers of the Independent League gets our number one spot for wackiest promotion. We had a couple uh, honorable mentions. There was um, Silent Night, where the fans had to not say a word for the first three innings. There were a couple others that were hilarious. There was Mike Tyson Ear Night where the fans were all given plastic ear. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. And then my final runner-up is Nobody Night through the Charleston River Dogs they ran, where they locked the gates to a game. Didn't tell anybody about it, but locked the gates, didn't let anybody in until the fifth inning. Apparently, they were trying to break some kind of um, zero attendance record and be in the Guinness Book of Records. However, it wasn't recognized because the tickets had already been purchased. Um, They did wind up opening the gates in the fifth inning once the game was an official game. So there you have it, our wackiest promotions in minor league baseball. 
Hope you enjoyed it. So we now move on to our team of the week. We haven't had one for a while, but I've uh, been wanting to bring it back. Again, got to thank uh, Tim Haggerty and his book, uh, Root for the Home Team. Um, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it everywhere. You can go to the Tim Haggerty website and buy one there too. Uh, it's full of uh, history and uh, great minor league team names. So our team of the week comes from the great state of North Carolina. Um, it's Thomasville, North Carolina, to be specific. Um, they were a member of the North Carolina State League. And our team of the week are the Thomasville Chairmakers. And the Thomasville Chairmakers probably had, I would probably hope, that, that their benches would be pretty comfortable. I mean, if you're a chairmaker... Your bleachers, your dugouts should be pretty, pretty comfy. Um, they were a Class D uh, team. They uh, got their name because Thomasville was known as the um, as Chair Town, Chair City. And so, as a matter of fact, in downtown Thomasville, they have a thirty foot tall replica of a Duncan Fife armchair. So that's a city committed to their armchairs, and so much so they named their baseball team after it. Hope you enjoyed today's episode, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of Bushball. If you get a moment, please subscribe. We appreciate that. Also, uh, even even more important, if you could leave us a, uh, a review and tell us how we're doing, maybe some ideas for a future podcast. Have a great night, everybody. 